Good to see you guys. My name's Jay. Uh, I'm on the team here at Awakening. We are in week two of a new series that we just started called Dreaming Wide Awake. And this is a huge, pivotal series for us as a church for a number of reasons. But one of the primary reasons, maybe the primary reason this is such a crucial teaching series in the life of our community is because we are exploring a question that really is at the center of who we are as human beings. And the question really is this, could it be possible that we might live life differently than we've always lived it? Is it possible that instead of just breathing and existing, it might look different to actually live? I mean, to really live fully, like Jesus promises in John 10, right? That he promises to give us life and life to the full. What does that really mean? And last week, Ryan kicked the series off by posing this idea. That dreaming wide awake, that living your life, not simply sleepwalking through the everyday, the mundane, and the ordinary, but rather living wide awake means embracing, and this is the key, a God-sized vision for your life and for mine. A God-sized vision. Now this is a huge, I mean literally a huge idea to explore. That we, human beings, might live in such a way that we embrace something bigger than ourselves, a vision for life bigger than anything that we could come up with, conjure up on our own. So dreaming wide awake is embracing a God-sized vision for our life. Uh, When my wife and I first um, met one another, I I was immediately from day one, I thought she's like the most beautiful girl I had ever seen. I was like, oh man, it's like my dream girl. I got to marry her, right? My wife, however, was not as interested in me as I was in her, in her, right? Initially. And so this is years ago because I'm, uh, older than many of you, most of you. Um, This was back in the day of uh, AIM. You guys remember AOL, Instant Messenger? Okay, this is back in the day of AIM, right? And so my wife had an AIM name, and so did I. And so we would chat every now and then online. And I don't know if you guys remember, but on AOL Instant Messenger, you could actually assign a very specific sound to anybody on your buddy list so that when they logged on, you would know right? Because it, it, you could assign like a, a de- different sound. And so I assigned Jenny a different sound so I would know when she would log on, right? So I don't remember what the sound was, but you know, one night I'm uh, at home and I'm just like kind of on the computer, whatever. And I hear her sounds like ding or whatever, right? I hear the sound and then like, oh, it's, it's my girl, right? <laughs> like, okay. So and I want to chat her up, right, obviously, because I'm, like, so into her. But I don't want to be that psycho that's like, you know, if you, ladies, if you log on and immediately it's like a chat box, like, hello, hi, right? It was, like, crazy. So, like, just chill a little bit. So I give it, like, a solid, you know, like, two minutes or whatever. I'm like, what's up? What's going on? <laughs> right? Like, all crazy. And, uh, you know, I'm chatting with her a little bit. And, like, I had, I was, like, in such a rush I was in such a hurry, you know? I, w- I wish I could tell you that I was like super smooth, right? Like, I wish I could tell you that I was like really suave and, you know, whatever. I'm not. I like totally was not. I was just like, what's going on? What are you, what are you doing? Want to get coffee? Like, it just came out, 
Right? She's like, um, yeah, I'm like at home, kind of busy, hanging out with family right now. It was, she, she just was not into it, right, at all. And so I was just persistent. I was like, well, it wouldn't take that long. I can meet you where you are. I mean, it was just like I was in such a rush. You know, I had no patience, right? This is my dream girl, and I had no patience. Finally, if you know my wife, Jenny, she's like the sweetest person ever, right? She's so sweet, so kind, just so, like has a hard time saying no. And so finally, she was clearly not into it, but she relents, and she's like, okay, fine, I'll meet you or whatever, I guess. And so we met in, I don't know if you guys have ever been there, a beautiful little coffee shop in downtown Saratoga called Blue Rock Shoot. And we met up there, right? And I met her there and I, you know, like I hadn't planned it. I had just rushed this whole thing. And so we sat down and this is the first time, you guys, this is the first time she and I had ever hung out one-on-one. We'd only hung out in groups. And so we didn't have like a rhythm to our relationship or anything. So she sits down and I sit down like, hi. (laughs) I'm just like staring at her and she's staring back at me. We're trying to have this conversation. I'm like, so what are you into? Right? Like super awkward. And maybe 30 minutes into it, you know, she's like, um, so I gotta go. (laughs) She got up and she left. That was like our first date. She doesn't consider it our first date. I do. And it sucked, right? It was terrible. (laughs) It was really bad. This is, uh, this is the world in which you and I live, though. We, um, I mean, this is the woman that I would eventually marry, and she is the love of my life, and uh, by God's grace, she thinks I'm an okay guy. Um, I fooled her, <laughs> right, or whatever. Um, Amen. Yeah. Thank you, or not. Uh, but this is the world in which we live. We rush things, right? I mean, you come across your dream girl. I come across the girl that I think this is it, right? The rest of my life, the rest of my life, I want to give to this woman. And I don't have enough patience to say, well, we could get coffee tomorrow. We rush it. We are in such a hurry. We, we live our lives in such a way that uh, if it doesn't fit into the chaos and the busyness of our calendars and our schedules, then we don't have time for it. We live in the Twitter world where if you can't say it in 140 characters or less, then no one is going to listen. But can you imagine if Shakespeare had adhered to that rule? Right? I mean, how many masterpieces would we be missing? Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes you can't say exactly what it is that needs to be said in a tweet. Sometimes it is good to sink deeply into a long, epic novel. And we forget this because we've bought into a lie that says the busier we are, the more important we are. The more meetings we have, the more places we need to be, the higher demand there is on our time and our resources, our talents and our skills, then the more more important and, and viable I am in this world, the more significance I have. And yet, when we are chasing a dream that is bigger than ourselves, when we are embracing not a, a human-sized vision, but 
a God-sized vision, there is not enough time or talent or skill in your life or mine to, to be able to pull off what it is God wants to do in the world. And so, the question becomes, where do we begin? If that's true, if God-sized vision cannot be accomplished in and of ourselves, if we cannot shove and fit God-sized vision into the chaotic schedules and hectic rigors of our busy lives, then where do we begin? It's a humbling thought. Some of you have, will, will recognize this picture. It's a picture of, a, of a, an Austrian skydiver and bass jumper named Felix Baumgartner. And in October of this last year, Felix Baumgartner set the world skydiving record. It can't even really be called skydiving. It's more like space diving. He set the, the, the skydiving record by uh, ascending 24 miles into the stratosphere and jumping out of this little contraption, this helium-fueled uh, contraption. He, he jumped out 24 miles into, into, the, into the air. That's why it's so high you see the rim of the earth there in the background. He's, in, he's almost literally in space. He skydives from, almost from space. Uh, Baumgartner actually um, set the world record for skydiving. At one point, he sets the world record by reaching top speed, a top speed in his free fall of 834 miles an hour. There's YouTube videos of this. Red Bull sponsored it. It is this huge deal. It, it was the most watched live YouTube thing ever. Uh, Baumgartner is actually the first person to ever break the sound barrier without any form of engine power. And this picture right here, when he, when he first stands up on the ledge, and the last words he says to mission control back on, on the base, he steps out, and right before he jumps, Baumgartner says this to mission control, I wish you could see what I can see. Sometimes you have to be up really high to understand how small you are. If and when we make the decision to jump headfirst into a God-sized vision for ourselves individually and for us together as a community, we must recognize how huge this is. It is God-sized vision. It's the biggest grandest thing you could ever imagine. In fact, it is beyond our imagination. And it does not happen in a hurry. What you need to know about Felix Baumgartner is that he trained for almost a year before his jump. He did trial jumps at different heights. And what you need to know about the actual jump is that when he gets into his capsule to go 24 miles into the air, his actual jump was like a little over 10 minutes. He was in free fall for about four minutes, a little over four minutes, and then he pulled his parachute, and then he just kind of parachutes, glides down for another six or seven minutes. Quick thing, right? 
maybe 10, 10, I mean, it's a long time if you're in free fall, but relatively 10, 11 minutes of your life is not all that much. What you need to know is that in order to do this jump, on top of uh, almost a year of training, he sat in that capsule for two and a half hours to reach the peak of 24 miles. Two and a half hours to jump about 10 minutes. Big things. Stories worth remembering. A life that has lasting impact on the earth in the name of Jesus does not happen in a hurry. This is in your notes. God-sized vision is never accomplished in a hurry. It is too expansive to fit inside our rushed lives and hectic schedules. God-sized vision requires that we step back and see just how small we really are against the backdrop of all that God desires to do. It requires patience and discipline in prayer. I love the way A.W. Tozer says it. He says, God never hurries. There are no deadlines against which he must work. Only to know this is to quiet our spirits and relax our nerves. There's this old prophetic book in the Old Testament, Habakkuk. And in this book, God says to the prophet, he says these words in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Here's the deal. For still, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. You see, we have for far too long bought into the lie that the more we do, the more we make, the more we create, the more we accomplish, the more we earn, the more we have, that dictates success and failure. But the truth of the Bible, the truth of Jesus' message, specifically in the Gospels, and the truth of God's kingdom playing out in our world today is that success is not dictated by any of those things. Success is not determined by how much you accomplish on your own. Kingdom success, success that has eternal lasting impact, success that is expressed in a story worth remembering and telling, success that changes the world in the name of Jesus is never something we accomplish in and of ourselves. It is only, it is only through God. This is why the idea of God-sized vision is crucial. Because until we say yes to the invitation to live into His vision for our lives, we're just running in circles. There's this story that we are in from the book, this Old Testament ancient book of Nehemiah. 
And it's the story of a man who lives in comfort. Last week when we started uh, the series, Ryan called it the lap of luxury. And I love that phrase. Nehemiah lives in the lap of luxury. And we don't have time to get into all the details, all the history of it. You can check out, I would encourage you to check out our podcast. You can watch it or listen to it. It's all over our website and Facebook and iTunes and all of that. But Essentially, the story is there is a man named Nehemiah who is a part of the royal court. I mean, he's like a big deal in the land, and he feels compelled. God calls him to something different. God calls him to leave his luxury, to leave his comfortable life, and to go rebuild the walls of this city, Jerusalem, which is a key city in the life of the Jewish people. And so Nehemiah makes the decision, and and Ryan said this, such a key point for us throughout the entire series, Nehemiah makes the decision to leave comfort in order to pursue calling, to leave comfort in order to pursue calling. Now, in order to to make that decision and to stick by it, I mean, something's got to compel you to do that, right? Right? You don't just leave comfortable situations to get into really what on the outside seem like really crappy situations. You don't leave the palace of the king to go to the rubble of a broken city. You don't just do that on your own. Something must compel a man or a woman to make such illogical decisions. So the question for us tonight is this. Dreaming wide awake, embracing a God-sized vision, what is it? that compelled Nehemiah to make this decision. Where did Nehemiah begin? Where does he begin? This is the very opening of the book, uh, about five verses into the opening of the book, Nehemiah. This is chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. Nehemiah prays a prayer. He prays a prayer. It goes like this. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess that we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you the the sins that we've committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. The book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's story of living and embracing a God-sized vision for his life, that story opens with a prayer. 
it opens with prayer. Now, this is not, uh, this is not usually our approach to prayer if we're being totally honest. Because the truth is, if we are being totally honest, prayer for us is most often a last resort. Right? Many of you are college students. I know you've done this. You, you hang out far too late with your friends. You get home and you've got that economics midterm the next morning, but it's like 4 a.m. and you're like, eh. You go to sleep. You wake up. You're marching to your class. And then, and, and then it just it hits you. Lord God of heaven, <laughs> if you have ever been with me, be with me now. Right? And then you step in full of confidence because God's not going to fail you. And you take this test and then you just mark C on everything on your little scantron. It's like, well, you know, I read some study about monkeys just marking C and they got okay grades. Whatever, right? So I'm going to do that. And then you get your midterm back and it's like a 36%. And you're like, Lord, why have you forsaken me? Right? I just told you a story like from my actual life, right? This is, this is what, this has happened. I have lived this reality because for us, for most of us, prayer is a last resort. Prayer is where we go when we've tried everything else. Prayer is where we go when we feel like we've got nothing left. Prayer is where we go at the last minute when we forgot to pray before. This is prayer. This is in your notes. Nehemiah's story tells us, it reveals to us this truth. Prayer as a last resort reveals the fallacy, the lie of self-reliance. Prayer as a last resort reveals the fallacy of self-reliance, but prayer as a launching point, as a launching point, leads us into God-sized vision. Here's the deal. If and when you and I say yes to participating, to taking part, to to moving ourselves into God's story for our lives, when we begin dreaming wide awake and embracing God-sized, God-sized vision for our lives, just like Felix Baumgartner standing on the edge, you will soon, quickly, and suddenly realize that this is way bigger than you. And you cannot do it on your own. You cannot do it on your own. When we pray as a last resort, it reveals that we have bought into the lie that we can get it done on our own. And the truth that we cannot has hit us sorely square in the face like a wall of bricks. But prayer is a launching point prayer as the beginning, the middle, and the end. Prayer as as conversation, as dialogue with God. Prayer as a theme interwoven through the ups and downs of our lives. That sort of prayer launches us into God-sized vision. And we find that the impossible is possible with God. Ephesians 6, verse 18, Paul writes, and, all, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 17, he writes very simply, pray continually. Keep praying. May prayer be your anthem. 
May prayer be the song that you are always singing. May prayer be the air you breathe. Pray continually. Oswald Chambers, I love the way he says it. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. C.S. Lewis says, relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing had yet been done. What a challenge. And so what does Nehemiah's prayer, what does Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1 teach us about how we ought to pray at the beginning, stepping into God-sized vision, embracing that in our lives? Teaches us three key things. First, when dreaming wide awake, we must remember who God is. We must remember who God is. In verse 5, Nehemiah begins his prayer by, by praying these words, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. O Lord, God of heaven, great and awesome God. I mean, there's a good chance that when you pray, and I pray as a last resort, the prayer doesn't begin that way. Because when we pray as a last resort, we're, we're frantic. We are, again, we are in a hurry or a rush, aren't we? I gotta, I gotta, I gotta ace this midterm. I gotta get this thing figured out or that thing figured out. God, I love you. God, I know you're able. Come and make this happen. And yet, for Nehemiah, even with the urgency of rebuilding the city walls right before him, he begins his prayer by remembering who God is. Great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. So what would that look like for us? I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. Praying out of urgency and only urgency doesn't allow us to pray this way. Now, this isn't to say that when you have major issues, sometimes life takes twists and turns. Sometimes a loved one just gets sick out of nowhere. And it's not to say that it's wrong to feel urgency. No, there are tons of prayers throughout the scriptures. The Psalms are full of prayers that are urgent and gut-wrenchingly rushed because the person, the psalmist doesn't know what to do. There's no way out. And God hears those and he honors those and he is with us in the midst of those. But when we pray out of, it, out of an urgency that we've created on our own, because prayer is a last resort for us, then it chokes the ability out of us to truly remember who God is. And this is what Nehemiah's prayer shows us first, that we must remember who God is. Second, when dreaming wide awake, we must recognize what we've done. We must recognize what we've done. Verses 6 and 7, Nehemiah prays, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Confession is incredibly difficult and often painful. 
because it is admitting to God in all honesty that we have fallen short. But here is why recognizing what we've done is so important. When we verbally and spiritually and otherwise admit to God our shortcomings, that we have failed, that we are sinners, that we are broken, that we are lost without Him, when we admit these things, we see in the midst of our darkness, we see the brightness of our God and His love poured out on the cross for us. You see, like stars shining against the backdrop of the night sky, it is our recognition of our failure that illuminates for our dim eyes the brightness of God's love for us. And so we must recognize what we've done. And this is tricky, but... Because for many of us, we get to this place and we get stuck here. We get lost in the land of what we've done. Many of you wrestle with this reality. Many, for many of you, the psalm goes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and then it ends there. And you say, that's it, that's my life. The truth is, the psalmist continues, I will fear no evil, because God is with the psalmist, and God is with you and me, and we need not fear. And so I would challenge us, based on Nehemiah's prayer, that when dreaming wide awake, we must remember who God is, and then we must recognize what we've done, and don't, don't get stuck there. Don't fear going there and don't get stuck there. Because out of that comes the third truth of prayer. Of prayer as a launching point that leads us into God-sized vision. And it is this. When dreaming wide awake, we must realize what God desires to do. In verse 9, Nehemiah, his prayer continues this way. Um, he's praying about God's promise, what God has promised. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Even if your exiled people, those who are lost, those who are without a home, even if they are at the farthest horizon, I will bring them home. You see, God-sized vision, in whatever ways it expresses itself and it, through you and manifests in the, in the world around you, it all boils down to a very simple and profound idea. God created us, he loves us, and he wants us back. God created us, he loves us, and he wants us back. That even if we have trekked to the farthest horizon, if we would turn back to him, he will bring us home. 
He'll bring us home. And, and if you and I began with prayer, if we allowed prayer to launch us into God-sized vision, and as a component of, of these prayers that would launch us into God-sized vision, if we would re- recognize and, and realize the truth of what God actually wants to do, if we would realize what it is God wants to do, it will begin to change everything about how you see the world. It'll begin to change everything. My wife and I have been wrecked. We have been wrecked by this series, and we're just a couple weeks in. We've been wrecked by it because, and I'll talk about this in a second, we've been asking you as a community, all of us together, we've been asking to pray this prayer, Lord, break my heart for the things that break your heart. And God is doing that in us. Like a month ago, my wife and I made some cookies, and we went to our neighbor's. And he just like knocked on doors like, hey, we're your neighbors. And my wife and I have lived in our neighborhood for four years, over four years. And we had a neighbor who's also lived there for an extended period of time open her door. And as we handed her a cookie, we were like, we're your neighbors. We live right down the street right here. Just wanted to give you some cookies. We had a neighbor look at us in the face and say, oh, are you new? And here's the thing, it ruined us. It wrecked us. Because you know that time when Jesus says, love your neighbor? And we get super smart with like all of our theology books, and we're like, oh yeah, I read N.T. Wright, and I know what neighbor means in Greek, and whatever, right? We're like, like get super smart. We're like, here's, here's what I think Jesus meant by neighbor. What if Jesus just meant my neighbor? And we laugh uneasy because the truth is we all have neighbors, friends, family, moms and dads, siblings, cousins, coworkers, classmates, best friends, bosses, colleagues, college professors, family, friends, we all are surrounded by countless beloved children of God who exist in darkness, sleepwalking their way through the mundane and the ordinary, and we refuse to leave the comfort of our luxuries to try and make a difference. And our neighbors whom Jesus has called us to love. Look at us. When we, when we do anything at all and say, did you just move in? Because it takes us so long to take even the tiniest step in the right direction. Here's the deal. I know that it's really scary. Like Felix Baumgartner standing on, on the edge of his capsule, ready to skydive, ready to go home, essentially, 24 miles down to the earth. I mean, that pales. The fear of that pales in comparison 
to the fear of living our lives in such a way that our lives aren't ours anymore. And yet, this is what Jesus calls us to, is it not? He says things like, take up your cross, which was a killing, it, it was a device for killing people in first century Palestine. Take up your cross and follow me. The Gospels and Paul's letters in particular talk a lot about resurrection. And we're all like, yeah, resurrection, I'll never die. You know what's crazy? You have to die to resurrect. There is no resurrection without death. The whole like, yeah, I'm a Christian, so eternity. Yes, you're right. But you understand that something needs to die. It's just that you and I die before the grave. And when we do, the grave matters no longer. We asked you last week to take these cards, Dreaming Wide Awake. They're on the back table. If you didn't grab one, would you grab one tonight? And on the back is a passage 2 Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And speaking of your heart, here is what we have asked you to pray, that this might be the weight that you carry in your heart. Lord, break my heart for the things that break your heart. And this is a frightening prayer to pray. Because if and when you choose to begin praying this prayer, I guarantee you it will change things. You will begin to see the people around you differently. And our hope is that the weight of this prayer weighs so much heavier on your heart than a little cardstock. I hope that this is the heaviest little card you ever carry around. Our prayer is that the prayer written on this card would weigh so deeply in you that it would begin to grip your heart and grow roots and anchors in God's love for the world that it would shatter your old paradigms and you would begin seeing your world with new eyes. That the prayer, Lord, break my heart for the things that break your heart, that that prayer would begin to exist beyond words on a piece of paper and it would begin to express itself in the way you think, see, smell, touch, feel, speak, love, that our world, that our city, that your schools, that your jobs, that your families and your circles of friends would begin to shift and change and be broken and remade because this prayer anchors itself in your soul. And that you begin to believe that through you, God can bring about God-sized vision that through you, through your prayers, your prayers that launch you forward, that God might actually change our world. 
You see, anything short of the world changing in the name of Jesus is too small to be God-sized vision. And so whatever part you are called to play, our hope, our prayer, our deepest longing is that these prayers would grow roots in you, that you might become so dissatisfied and so broken for the 27 million slaves worldwide, or broken homes, or orphans, or a lack of water, that your heart might begin to break for the broken in your own home or between your friends that your heart might begin to break for that person you sit next to in class every day and you know they don't know Jesus and all you have to do is say a kind word and a sweet invitation to relationship. Our hope is that your heart will begin to break shatter even for the things that break the heart of God. Mother Teresa said it this way, may God break my heart so completely that the whole world falls in. Let's do this um, right now. Let's pray together. But let's pray the way we've just talked about praying. I'm going to ask the band to come up and we're going to close with a song. But I just want to invite you to these three things, hoping and praying that these three things will launch all of us collectively and individually into God-sized vision for our lives. Would you just bow your heads? Close your eyes. I'm just going to talk us through this. And quietly, would you pray these prayers? Would you just for a moment remember who God is? Great and awesome. Keeps his covenant of love. Would you just remember him? Who he is? Would you recognize what you've done, what we've done, and the ways in which we have um, broken the heart of God? Would you just confess those things to Him? Finally, would you realize what it is God wants to do? 
dream big, imagine huge, and realize what it is God wants to do in and through you and in your world. God, would you break our hearts for the things that break your heart? Would you break our hearts so wide open, so completely, that the whole world would fall in? Help us to sink deeply into your presence. Not just at the start or at the end, but in all things. That every moment would be prayer. Every breath we breathe in and out would be prayer, conversation with you. We trust in you, God. We love your presence in our lives and in this room. And we commit ourselves to following you into whatever vision and story you might have for us individually and collectively. In Jesus' name, amen.